are on. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Renegade Show. And today we have a really special guest on the show. And she is doing some amazing work in bioengineering. And she's leading a research program. And uh, welcome to the pod, Aparwa. Thank you, Kelvin. I'm really excited to be here today. Great. So, Apoa, why don't you tell the listeners, how did you start on this journey in, in bioengineering and what led you to this research program? Absolutely. So, for as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by life itself and understanding the mechanisms that help life work the way that it does. And so, when I came to my biology class as a freshman, I was just fascinated to learn more exactly on how different organisms operate. And when I learned about genetic engineering, I was fascinated by the prospect that we can literally use molecules to save lives. Mm -hmm. And so from then onward, I got involved with various forms of biological research. At my school, I'm involved with a synthetic biology club called BioBuilder which is where we design systems in groups of peers using synthetic biology to target real world problems. So mm -hmm. some of the projects that I've worked with in the past have been designing systems to target the ocean's plastic crisis, eutrophication in the Great Lakes, as well as hemophilia A. And although these projects never really made it past the design stage, it was really a wonderful exercise to understand more in depth how exactly we can engineer biological systems and get them to target real world problems. Right. And so that's what I've done during the school year. And then over the summers, I've worked at various genetic engineering research camps and gotten to get some really hands-on wet lab experience, which has been extremely vital to my understanding of research as a whole. And it wasn't until about last year where I joined the Knowledge Society that I really decided and got started discovering my passions for more applications of genetic engineering. And so it was through TKS that I found my passion for stem cells and genetic engineering. And it really fascinated me, the potential of stem cells and genetic engineering in nanotech. And so it wasn't until I discovered the potential of how these three can be used together that I was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to do for, if not the rest of my life, then at least for the next couple of years. And, and so, oh, no, and it's interesting because you figured out very early on what you want to do for the rest of your life. And for the listeners, tell them where you are in the stage of your life and what is the Knowledge Society? Yeah, so I am 17 years old and I'm currently a senior in high school. So mm -hmm. I'm right on the edge of beginning my secondary education. And so to talk more about the Knowledge Society, it's an accelerator for teens like myself, ages 13 to 17, that's dedicated to helping teens understand cutting edge technology like stem cells and genetic engineering, but also things like AI and blockchain and how they can use these technologies to solve some really pressing problems in the world. Mm -hmm. And so while teaching us also about tech, we also the program rather focuses pretty heavily on 
personal growth and understanding oneself. Because the overall goal of the program is to seek understanding, not only of the world, but yourself. Right. Right. And in the period of COVID, when we were talking before the interview, you started to be really resourceful given access to research labs. And you did something most people wouldn't imagine of doing in this period. You actually built a research kind of environment uh, where you are. Talk to us about that resourcefulness and then how that led you into uh, creating this environment. Yes. So once I started to really understand that using the combination of stem cells, genetic engineering, and nanotech, and use it to solve a pressing problem like limb loss, I immediately got to thinking about the kind of research that I wanted to do. And I knew that this was something that had to be done as soon as I could get started. And then, of course, COVID-19 hit. And so I applied for various internships and reached out to different labs, and places that would theoretically allow me to do research. And the response was mostly similar because of COVID-19, all these labs were shut down, which then made it difficult to really start with my research and make progress on the project. And so I decided to take a shot at building my own lab. And although I'm still in the process of doing so, the time period between when I decided to start on this project mini project, if you will, back in May up until now has been invaluable in teaching me not only even more about research and what it means to get feedback from some of my more experienced scientist peers in the developmental biology and regenerative medicine research fields, but also on the business side of things Mm -hmm. where I got to talk to different biotech entrepreneurs about the best way to approach the project from an entrepreneurial standpoint, which isn't something I'm looking at just yet because I am still very much in the research phase of this project, but looking even two to five years down the line, it is something I would be interested in doing, having regeneration as a service. Right, and and so talk to us about why stem cells is so hotly contested and debated uh, in many parts of the world. I know some people are for it, some people are against it. Specifically, what is the kind of stem cells that, that you're looking to do and, and why is there so much, if you, you kind of say, controversy around it from your point of view? So as I understand it, the main controversy comes from embryonic stem cells, which okay. are stem cells that are derived from an embryo. Because that forces us to ask the question, what constitutes life and where exactly does life begin? There are some people who will say that we can't take cells from an embryo. It's harming a life where other people will say embryos don't necessarily count as life. Therefore, we can afford to take stem cells from these embryos and really use their potential to treat a variety of diseases and injuries. Mm-hmm. And it's because of this controversy that I find alternatives like induced pluripotent stem cells really fascinating. What is that? Talk more about induced pluripotent stem cells. You can take adult cells such as, let's say, skin cells from the inside of your arm, And you can use specific reprogramming genes in order to revert them back to a pluripotent state. 
and pluripotent is where these cells can differentiate into virtually any cell type you can think of. Everything from heart cells to muscle tissue to even cells on, for example, you can turn it into perhaps tongue tissue or tissue from the inside of your cheek. So as you can understand, these cells have amazing and enormous potential. And right. with, the ad, with the invention of induced pluripotent stem cell or iPSC technology, it doesn't mean that rather we can bypass that controversy and still be able to harness this amazing technology. And, and talk to us about the innovations uh, that's been happening in bioengineering. So we heard about CRISPR. Do you use CRISPR in your, the work that you're doing, or is there a different set of technology for, for harvesting or, or re-engineering stem cells? Or Absolutely. IPSC? Yeah. I've heard of CRISPR being used to generate IPSC technology through various means. Most scientists use non-integrating viral vectors in order to inject the genes into the stem cells so that they can be reprogrammed back into the pluripotent cell state. And so I personally don't use CRISPR right now for my research as I'm just looking at fruit flies and fruit fly cells that already have these pluripotent-like properties, but it is something I would be interested in experimenting with in future experiments down the line. And, and so from an application standpoint, what do you hope that this research will eventually uh, be used for? Is there, is there something in your life that you've seen uh, through your experience that you want to go solve that, that probably has some personal resonance to you? Or is there a, 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 an initiative out there that you, if you had the opportunity to go and commercialize or um, create the application, where would you where would you go and do it and why? That Absolutely. Yeah. The long-term goal of my research is to solve human limb loss. I want to use these stem cells along with genetic engineering and nanotech mm -hmm. to help amputees organically grow limbs. Mm -hmm. And of course, this isn't a solution like that is the be-all end-all for amputees. Rather, it's just an alternative that we can have as just an alternative treatment. And so that's looking very much long-term. I hope to be able to do this within the next 10 to 15 years. But why but human, but, but why human limb loss? What, what's, what's about, what about that cause is drawing you to that, to that area? I'm curious. Yeah, so I think it's just so interesting to think about that over 30 million people around the world live with limb loss. And this is due to causes like vascular disease, physical trauma, and the best solutions that we have today are prosthetics, but they're largely ineffective because they're cumbersome, pretty expensive, and largely ineffective because they can't exactly mimic that nerve connection that really makes our natural limbs function the way that they do. Although all this technology is really exciting, we're essentially still living in the pirate age where we're putting hunks of metal onto people's bodies and calling them functioning limbs. Mm. So I thought to myself, there has to be a better way. 
And so I discovered these animals, or rather I heard about these animals, which are the Mexican axolotls, who can actually regrow new limbs in the place of lost old ones in just under two months. And so I thought to myself, if salamanders can do this, why shouldn't we be able to? And so here I am with my work today. And 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 is there a is there a human face to these sufferings that you keep in the front of your mind as you do this research? Is there uh, an organization or or a set of people that you've uh, interviewed or came across as you you wake up every day trying to solve this problem? How how is this how is this issue being humanized for you? Absolutely. So my grandfather was a diabetes sufferer. And so I had to watch as he struggled to walk because part of his feet, parts of his feet were cut off. And he really did struggle just to get up and move around. And it was really hard to see him do that. But even that struggle, I know there are people out there who don't live without an entire arm or an entire leg or both of their arms or both of their legs. And I think it's just about recognizing that the solutions we have today, they are ineffective. And there has to be a better way to solve this problem and help these people not let things like limb loss prevent them from achieving their dreams and maximizing their full potential. It's, uh, it's really interesting. And, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because my own family members has a diabetic history in their family. And I have had four relatives gone through loss of limbs in, in their legs. And most people, for those listening on the show, diabetes in the South Asian community is very pre- prevalent. Yes. And a loss of limbs doesn't only occur as a result of being in an active combat situation or, or a medical accident. It is extremely prevalent in, in South Asia and parts of the world where diabetes, which goes untreated or unchecked, can lead into loss of limbs. So I think the, the, the mission that you are trying to solve hits home for me because it's 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 a it's a there is a human face to this problem and and i'm i'm glad that that this inspiration to solve this problem is is coming from not only the 30 million people who have to live with this but there is this inspiration so how is this i mean i want to juxtapose this against other young people solving world problems how important is it having a personal history or a personal relationship to the problem you're solving, how does that affect you as you go through with this mission? Does it help you? Does it make it more uh, personal? Is it more traumatic? Is it more hard? How, how does this affect you as a, a researcher and then maybe one day an entrepreneur? For me, it is extremely important to have a personal connection to the things that I'm doing and my research. It's a huge source of motivation and inspiration for me to recognize these things, like the story of my grandfather and many like it in the different communities affected by limb loss. These are the kinds of things that help me get up in the morning and remember why I'm doing this research in the first place. So for me, especially, I think that having that personal connection is really important. 
Right. And, and how, how, how easy or difficult is it to get team members and people to come on board? And, and I want to ask you this question in two ways. One, you're still in high school, but you're solving an in, intractable problem. As, and as you say, we haven't really evolved since the days of the pirates, right? How easy or difficult is it to get people to support you, join with you, come in as research and maybe provide funding, given how early you are in your life and how big this challenge is? How do you solve these obstacles if you do get these obstacles? First, I always remember that just where I am in my career, I am still fairly on in my career. And I do have a lot to learn about developmental biology and about regenerative medicine. And so that is important for me to remember as I progress, because there is a lot I still have to learn compared to some of these more experienced researchers and scientists who have spent years of their career working on this stuff. I find that sometimes that gives me an opportunity to ask them for advice because they are so experienced in these fields and they can give me that perspective as experienced researchers on the feasibility of what I'm doing and where I need to may look at different resources for correcting mistakes or filling in different knowledge gaps. So on the side of being a researcher, that's where I found the most support from people is getting that advice and getting feedback on my experimental protocol so that I can go into this research and make as much progress, successful progress as possible. Right. And in terms of bioengineering, there is a a series of protocols that one has to endure in order for research to become applied research and then commercialization. How important is a fresh perspective or thinking outside of the box, or challenging the norms applicable, especially in a field where the people that have come before you have poured a lot of years into a very specific set of protocols or approach. How do you balance the the need to look what has come before you and yet innovate in engineering, bioengineering? Yes. So understanding everything that has come before me is especially vital in understanding where I can go next. So much of science as a whole is collaborative. And in some ways, it is like standing on the shoulders of giants. And so I always appreciate the research that's been put in of people who are experienced before me. But again, it is about understanding that we still have a lot of room to grow and innovate in these fields. And so when it comes to talking about the protocol specifically, I think having professional labs is a really great way and is probably the best and most ideal way of performing research. But if you have the space and can get the funding to do so, you can work just as easily with a very small, even a small home lab setup in order to do very fundamental and basic research and still really gain a good understanding of biology. So you can have both of those things, I think. Yeah. And as someone who actually built her home lab, you, you, you are in the process of building or you have yeah. built your home lab. Talk to us about how complex or how easy, how expensive or how feasible is building a home lab in order to, to do that. Because I think innovation comes 
when access to in to to labs and lab type materials or home labs becomes pre- prevalent so for the people listening on this podcast they there are many young people just like you in parts of the world who are maybe not in north america who may be interested in looking at the idea of a home lab so speak to us about that entire journey that you went through as you as you were embarking on this home lab project yes So like you said, I am still very much in the process of building this lab and raising funding to do so. But I'll actually speak more on the first piece of equipment that I built, which is a water bath. And so I built this water bath out of an aquarium that a friend had and decided to lend to me when he decided that he didn't want to take care of fish anymore. So it was a really great way to repurpose this thing that someone had given me and use it to contribute to my biological research. So it doesn't take a lot of high grade equipment in order to perform biological research, I think. If you can get the best equipment available, that is very much ideal and optimal, but you can work with the resources you have in order to get something started. For example, I have this this aquarium that I made into a water bath And I also am building a sterilization hood, which is primarily out of an old table that we had, as well as an exhaust fan, a couple of light UV lights that I had, and a couple of other things. And so you can build a lot of things. And what's nice is that sometimes people will be willing to sponsor you and give old equipment and things that they don't need anymore. So not only is it about being resourceful and finding things on your own, but really taking advantage of the people around you and networking so that you can take advantage of what they've learned in their own resources as well. Right. And are you planning to open source the the blueprints of how you build your home lab so that future folks will potentially be able to get some inspiration on how to go about building this uh, home labs? Or what's the plans for taking this knowledge that you have and kind of uh, disseminating it? Absolutely. I do have plans to eventually open source my own blueprints. Although a lot of what I have learned has come from a website called I believe it's hackopedia.org. I can probably look it up later, but really these amazing people have already done so much in the field of DIY bio and set up different platforms where they've been able to showcase how they've built equipment. And so one of the goals of my lab is to make research more accessible and really bridge the gap in communication between the scientific community and the public to promote that honesty and build that trust and respect. So that is something I'm looking towards for the future. Great. And one last question before on the technical side, before we kind of go to the end of the, the, the segment, bioreactors, is it a requirement when you're doing bioengineering? Is that one of the equipments that needs to, as you're trying to grow certain things, do you need a bioreactor? How does that work? Or is it just something that is totally, you know, outside of the realm of uh, bioengineering? Yeah. So bioreactors, I have not worked with them extensively. So I'm afraid I can't entirely speak to how they are related to bioengineering. That's something I am willing to look into. And I would be interested potentially to have in a lab if it applies to the work that I'm doing, so. Great. 
So as we end this segment, what's your, what's, what's your advice to all the renegades out there who's young like you, looking to get into bioengineering? And mostly, it's, it's, it's not a very uh, female-dominated industry. So what's your advice to uh, all these folks listening? Be resourceful. Take mm-hmm. advantage of, if you have access to it, take advantage of the internet and different libraries Look at the things that have already been done and the things that are currently being done so that you can understand where innovation is necessary and begin on that journey yourself. Great. Apurva, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey in in research. And we wish you all good luck as you democratize research around the world and solve the the problem of limb loss, because I think it's it's something very personal to me and my family, and we wish you all the best. Thank you for coming on the pod. Thank you.